This is Live Wired in Calgary. Hey everyone, happy May long weekend and welcome to Live Wired in Calgary. I am Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com, and I'm proud to produce this monthly show with the team at CJSW 90.9 FM and recorded on traditional Treaty 7 land. There are a lot of things happening in the news world, and we're going to hit on a handful this month. Kids are heading back to school to finish up the year, and we're just seeing a fade in the number of COVID cases. We're going to cap off the whole voter list situation and clarify things for you there. There's more news on the green line, and we'll hit on that this month. But there's a conversation about the Calgary Stampede still going ahead this summer, and we're going to look at that as well. Once again, it's a packed show, so kick back for the next 30 minutes and get up to speed on a handful of local issues. I'm very happy to announce today that all students in kindergarten to grade 12 will return on May 25th to in-class learning as following the long weekend. The education system reset we announced earlier in May has been very successful. It has helped to alleviate the operational pressures tied to the rise of COVID-19 cases in our communities. There were 621 cases on Friday with, I believe, somewhere around 800 cases on Thursday. Thursday was also one of the highest days on record for daily vaccinations, with roughly 2% of eligible Albertans getting their vaccine. Even our positive case rate is going down. All signs seem to be pointing towards a perhaps reasonable conclusion to the COVID-19 situation here in Alberta. As far as kids going back to school tomorrow, there was an interesting question posed to Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, at a recent press conference about kids going back to school. First is Kevin Nimick with CTV. Go ahead, Kevin. Hi, Dr. Henshaw. The education minister is intent on kids going back to school next Tuesday. Is that based on your advice? The decision to have children move to online learning was an operational decision and one that uh, the Ministry of Education, uh, again, could comment on in more detail, but uh, was due to high community transmission putting pressure on schools with exposures causing many people needing to quarantine and difficulties finding sufficient uh, staff, substitute teachers to be able to continue to operate schools. We see numbers beginning to decline. We see uh, the beginning of what, um, again, we believe to be an easing of that community transmission while we still have a ways to go. As community transmission reduces, pressures on schools will also reduce. And it's important to remember that with the measures in place, there were, uh, while there were some transmission events within schools, schools have never been a predominant driver of transmission within the community. Kevin, is there a follow-up question? Yeah, I, I, I'm just looking for a yes or no answer. Is that specifically based on your advice for kids to go back to in-person schooling on Tuesday? I just want to be clear that uh, the the decision to close or the decision to move to online learning was not based on 
a, uh, a public health need. And so the decision to bring children back, again, um, it, it was a, a decision based on educational considerations. I don't believe there to be a public health risk in bringing children back to school. Uh, but again, the, the shifting has been based not on a public health driver, but rather again on that operational consideration. There has been some worry about kids going back to classes and it kicking off a so-called fourth wave. We've got six weeks of school left and we're at that school balance that's been going on since the start. Kids in school and the potential spread. Or parents at home trying to do their jobs, trying to teach and trying to parent. As a parent doing that, it's stressful. And let's be honest, it's likely one of the reasons alcohol consumption is up. That's no joke. Also, there are parents who aren't able to be at home. They're working to make ends meet. And who knows if the kids are online for schooling. It's a difficult situation all around. And I don't envy the balancing act the government has to perform here to get this right. But we'll see shortly how it all turns out. We'll stick with COVID here for our next segment, but this time in relation to the Calgary Stampede. About a week ago, Calgary Stampede officials said they were going to go ahead with the greatest outdoor show on earth, and though they didn't know about things like the rodeo, the grandstand show, or a full-on midway, they did say it would have the foods, the fair, the animals, and indigenous displays. The suggestion was that they have 200 acres for people to spread out and enjoy the event. The province knows the Calgary Stampede is preparing, and the Premier has come out and said he's looking forward to this year's event. So clearly, he's optimistic too. Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi talked with reporters on this a little over a week ago, and here's what he had to say. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for doing this today. A quick question about uh, the stampede. We heard yesterday uh, from uh, the spokesperson that they're likely to open up with um, a bit more space between people. But I'm wondering with all of these other um, summer festivals that are closing uh, and or delaying their uh, their things, uh, the Comic and Entertainment Expo announced today that they're postponing their uh, proceedings. Wondering if it's wise for Stampede to go ahead this year. I know that my colleagues on the Stampede board and the Stampede staff have been working very hard on figuring out what the safest possible Stampede looks like. And the challenge that we have is that July 9th is not May 13th. And so it's going to be very difficult for us to forecast forward what the situation looks like. But I'll repeat what I said before, which is there will be some form of Stampede this year. There really was some form of stampede last year. There were fireworks and drive through pancake breakfasts. And so somewhere between fireworks and pancake breakfasts only and what looks and feels like a traditional stampede will be what we find in order to do something that can give people a sense of celebration, can give people a sense of turning the page on the pandemic that ultimately has to be incredibly safe. Okay. I, I mean, it, it sounds... I mean, it... The World Health Organization, the U.S. CDC, have recognized that there's aerosolized spread. And you've been to more stampede events probably than I have. You know how tightly packed people can be. Doesn't this yeah, present yeah. opportunity for super spreader events? Absolutely. It, uh, if, we, if we had a normal stampede, of course it would. 
And so the real question is, what can we do that will still give people a flavor of the stampede without packing them in tightly into indoor spaces uh, that can be very problematic? And there, there are some options on what that could look like, but ultimately we won't have a good sense of that until we really know where the infection curve is going. But I don't think there's anybody who's not worried about that, and there's nobody, no matter how much they love the stampede, who wants to create an unsafe environment or a spreader environment. If the Calgary Stampede is on, I'll probably go. I know Calgary can have this odd love-hate relationship with our 10-day party, but it provides a sense of normalcy that we haven't had in some time. I'm hoping the vaccination rate, the caseloads, and the hospitalizations are down far enough that we do get to enjoy some form of the Calgary Stampede. I'll be there, if for no other reason than to celebrate that we finally, fingers crossed, got the pandemic in the rearview mirror. It doesn't look like Calgary is going to produce a voters list for this upcoming municipal election. If you recall, it became an issue after a CBC Calgary story by Megan Grant that brought awareness to the fact that one particular Calgary mayoral candidate would have access to it. It, of course, is the list that's created for campaigns and candidates in order to contact potential voters in a respective ward. So this particular candidate in question has spewed hate, made threats against public health staff, and had a restraining order placed on him and been arrested for it. So it's not the kind of person you necessarily want having the personal information of 600,000 plus potential Calgary voters. This came up last week in the city's Priorities and Finance Committee meeting, and city solicitor Jill Flown tried to shed some light on it. We'll play clips of the meeting where she explains what options the city has for the voter list. I asked Councillor Gondet to move this one. Ms. Flown, are you with us? I am, Your Worship. Can you hear me? Sure can. Um, could, so could you repeat, please, what we heard in closed session in terms of the existence of the list, what it would take to make a list, and what our plans are? Absolutely, Your Worship. So there is, this is with respect to a list of electors in relation to the upcoming municipal election. And there is no list of electors that exists or that is being prepared for the upcoming election. In order to prepare a list, direction is required from council by bylaw, and that direction does not exist. So there is no authority at this time to create a list. The election can be administered without a list, and in fact, previous elections have been administered successfully without a list of the electors, and therefore the returning officer is not intending to create a list to administer the election and will not be seeking that direction. Thanks. Um, I understand that the returning officer will be coming back to us in July for some housekeeping things prior to the actual election, but you believe that we can run the election with advanced polls and everything without the need for this voters list? That's correct, Your Worship. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Councillor Gondek, I'll ask you to move this and add anything else if you've got anything else. Thank you very much, Your Worship. Um, I will move it, and I, I would also like to just ask a couple of questions to make sure public has 
um, clarity on what's happening. If I can ask, uh, Ms. Sloan, can you tell us the difference between a voter registry and the purpose of that particular document versus a list of the electors or what we've been calling a voters list? Yes, so the, um, the registry is a document that is compiled with, with uh, extensive information um, about electors. And that is a document that a municipality creates or is authorized to create under the Local Authorities Election Act if directed by council to do so um, through a variety of sources, including information received from the province. And the purpose to which that registry can be put is to create the list of electors. And so that that registry cannot be distributed to members of the public. It cannot be shared with members of the public. It will not be shared with candidates um, because it is not that it, the legislation does not authorize that. So that registry is only for the use of election staff at the time of election to make sure that they are checking in on who's casting a ballot. Is that correct? Uh, in fact, no. That's not even uh, what it's used for. It's used for the creation of a list. So that registry is not used to administer the election either. So what tool do we use to administer the election or to make sure that when people show up to vote, we have some sort of a list by which to verify them? So there is a direction contained in the Local Authorities Election Act. And there is um, uh, authorization to vote under Section 53 of the Act. And what it provides for is that if there is a list of electors, if, then one must be permitted to vote. But if there is no list of electors, then there's a number of other steps that can be followed to authorize someone to vote. And it involves uh, making a statement, validating their identity, and then filling out a particular form. And historically, that's been the way that we have administered many of our elections. Well, thank you for, for clarifying that. So if we do not produce a list of electors, um, when the public goes to vote, there is no list against which we will be comparing who's coming to vote. It will just be a matter of stating that you're eligible to vote. Correct. Uh, yes, so people will attend at their voting stations or they will attend at the advanced polls and they will be required to validate their identity through different forms of um, identification and they will be required to make a statement indicating that they are who they are holding themselves out to be, that they're entitled to vote and they will be required to sign a form. Okay, so everyone that goes to vote has to sign a form that they're eligible to vote? Correct. Okay, thank you for that. Um, if I may ask, does the municipality have any ability to disqualify a candidate? No, they do not. So it doesn't look like any sort of voters list is going to be created. This means this election won't have any list generated to specifically track voters. As the city said, they've held elections this way before, but it does raise the possibility of a couple of things. Without the list, there's no specific way to ensure that people aren't voting at multiple polling stations. I mean, they do have to sign something saying that they are who they represent themselves as, 
But is there a specific way to check that person should be voting at a certain station? Is there a danger that folks can be voting at multiple polling stations? What about the idea of people having to sign something saying they are supposed to be voting? Well, I don't think that this would be a major problem. In some areas, especially after the supper hour, this could create a bottleneck issue with each voter having to sign a sheet before entering the voting booth. Could there be lineup issues, and is this another barrier to bringing people out to vote? I also worry that once the election is complete and in the close races, there will be calls of people not having time to vote because the lineup was so long and they decided to leave. And and that's always an issue in these kinds of elections. The list is also not being made available to candidates so they can contact potential electors. Some have said that this is a problem. Others have said it's not a problem if it's keeping the list from those trying to inflict harm on others. Either way, it's a rather unfortunate circumstance that we have to be in this situation at all. The Green Line is in the news yet again and yet again for similar reasons to before. Questions over the 11th Avenue alignment were brought up by individuals at last week's Green Line committee meeting. Among those who raised concerns were Remington Developments and Calgary businessman Jim Gray, who is a member of an ad hoc citizens group who wants the Green Line alignment changed and it brought above ground in the downtown. The groups have said and reiterated countless times that a different alignment and the configuration would save the city hundreds of millions in construction costs, potentially allowing more Green Line to be built. The city has steadfastly said that given all the risk, the 11th Avenue alignment is the best risk-tested solution with the most value for Calgarians. They said it's the best option. But the debate spurred this comment from Councillor Jeff Davison, and it had some council watchers asking, who's really steering the green line? And looking on chat, we do have an RTF from uh, Councillor Davison. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Uh, Actually, the question is for you, Chair. Um, You know, given what we've heard here today, you know, I'd like to kind of figure out what an option would look like to have an in-camera discussion with Remington or... Uh, which would probably include the Green Line Board. I mean, I think, you know, we need to look at maybe, uh, you know, some kind of investigation, uh, you know, through the Green Line Board and and report an outcome kind of on what we've heard today. I mean, this is, it's a bit concerning um, in terms of what we've heard. And so uh, I think looking at this, is there an opportunity to have somebody do an independent investigation to look into these issues uh, in detail and, you know, process something back to council to ensure that we've got sort of the full details in, in the most sort of transparent and fair way. Um, just uh, off briefly, um, we obviously know that um, committee can make no specific recommendations that counter or direct council to do anything they can request. Uh, motions arising that committee uh, do not come up. Um, and it was uh, council's direction back in 2020 to evaluate this uh, and then come back and do a report and that evaluation time has has expired but uh, 
I'm not sure if administration or, or let me look in the RTS, uh, would like to respond, um, GM uh, Thompson, or uh, uh, yeah. GM, uh, His Worship. Go ahead. I was going to say thank you very much, uh, Councillor Davis and uh, Councillor Keating. I do see that uh, Mayor of uh, RTS in the chat as well, like you mentioned, uh, Councillor Keating. As we've mentioned uh, before, uh, we've done the revised uh, cost analysis between the 10 to 12,000 year alignments and the um, 11,000 year alignment. And the 11,000 year alignment um, is still coming back at a lower uh, cost. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Thompson, I'm just going to, I just want to stop you. Sorry, I, I know we're in the public hearing and I, I'm just trying to figure out, uh, I know we'll have these questions after for administration. I'm just trying to figure out if there's a way to have uh, potentially an in-camera conversation about what we've heard here today uh, that would include uh, the Green Line Board and Remington with Council and Committee. And so, yes, and, that's I, exactly I, and I can appreciate we'll have some answers that uh, Mr. Thompson will be able to give us after. So, I was more or less looking for a procedure. Mayor Nenchi has a request in to speak. He takes the opportunity to answer the procedural matter on the closed door meeting but also to question the validity of such a request coming to Council when much of this work has already been done. Let's go, uh, Councilor Davison, uh, let's go to His Worship and I'll come back to you, um, uh, knowing that you still have the floor, but we're trying to find a answer to your question. So, thanks, Chair. Okay, uh, I'll just answer the I'll just answer the procedural part of what Councillor Davison is requesting. Of course, committee could request a confidential conversation today, and the provisions of the Freedom of Information Act would allow them to invite in external folks, uh, including the folks from Remington. However, I do just want to highlight that Council's direction in June of 2020 was extremely clear and uh, on purpose. It was extremely clear. And um, it really highlighted the fact that uh, there was a deadline, that this very specific bounded work had to be done. And I understand Mr. Ollenberger's point that perhaps it was too specific and too bounded, but Council did that eyes wide open, that we approved the 11th Avenue alignment, but for these very specific questions that were raised uh, at the public meetings uh, prior to that. And there was a deadline. And that deadline has now expired. So as far as procedure is concerned, the 11th alignment is approved. Um, and uh, up until the moment that uh, an RFP is issued for this, uh, council could change that. That would require a supermajority of council, 10 votes out of 14. Um, but I just want to be extremely clear that council has approved the 11th Avenue alignments and the sort of Hail Mary pass uh, in order to assess that, that option has expired. Thank you for that, Your Worship. Um, and I'm not, uh, let's go back to Councillor Davison. Uh, it sounds like we could go in camera, but that means the discussion and all the documents and data would have to be presented today. Uh, and I'm not sure that's going to do justice to what you're asking. Um, whether yeah. or not there's a way, yeah. And, and maybe uh, this is something to take up when we forward this to uh, to council on the consent agenda. Uh, perhaps we can you know we can work with the presenters then and think about whether or not that might be an option for us to do or not. 
and I think that's that's where I was going. Is is, is I, uh, it would be an injustice to try and iron this out this afternoon. Citizen groups and developers and dozens of other stakeholders have had their opportunity to talk with the city about the Green Line and to share their concerns. The city has taken that feedback, we assume, and still come up with the ideal alignment for the Green Line, and that is along 11th Avenue. Given the situation with the province and the 11-month delay to review it, the potential for changes and another public review it's worrisome that this is a continued delay tactic. Are groups trying to push this off until the next city council, where there may be a more favorable city council makeup that could dramatically alter the green line? It certainly does give that feel. These groups have said their piece before. The cities still come up with this 11th Avenue solution. It doesn't mean these groups are entirely wrong, but it does make you ponder the motivation for repeated return visits to council to argue against an already council-approved alignment. We have a few moments here to touch on a situation that drew criticism from Calgarians. Last weekend, there was a pro-Palestine rally through downtown Calgary. Initially, Calgary police said they, and the organizers, expected roughly 200 vehicles. It ended up, there were more than a thousand vehicles that showed up for the protest. Mid-last week, the Calgary police issued a media release stating they were expecting to issue roughly 100 tickets as a result of the event. The Calgary police were very clear to point out that the tickets were the result of traffic violations in the area, including people hanging out of windows and sunroofs and the like. The Calgary police tickets triggered a flurry of responses. Most of the responses that came in pointed to the fact that tickets are rarely issued for the hundreds attending anti-mask rallies in Calgary. Some respondents suggested that people pay closer attention and that these were traffic tickets, not public health tickets. That's where the irony of this begins. We've had anti-mask protests for months now, with few tickets being doled out to anyone participating. They're mostly protesting in front of Calgary City Hall or walking downtown Calgary. No vehicles. Police said that they were able to collect evidence of the traffic infractions at the pro-Palestine rally through traffic light cameras, dash cams, and body-worn cameras. It's believed that due to license plates being visible, ticketing was made easier than doing so against individuals, those attending the anti-mask rallies. All of the infractions are illegal, traffic or public health. Because the pro-Palestine organizers tried to put together a COVID-friendly rally with easily identifiable vehicles, they were easier to tag for tickets. It doesn't make much sense from this perspective. Illegal is illegal. Just because the pro-Palestine rally made it easier to tag doesn't mean they should have been hit at a massively higher rate than anti-maskers. Both sides have the right to gather and protest. But public health or traffic, a violation, is a violation. But this situation gives the appearance that the law is being applied different depending on which protest you're at and the availability of evidence to convict. 
I'm not saying for a moment that tickets shouldn't have been issued in the pro-Palestine rally, but we've got two similar situations where laws are broken. Shouldn't how Calgary police exercise the law be the same? It's not the first time this has happened. After a December 2020 vehicle rally by Calgary's South Asian community in support of Indian farmers, dozens of tickets were issued. Again, they were tied to traffic safety violations. The Calgary Police description of them was almost verbatim, the same kinds of violations, people hanging out windows, sunroofs, stunting, etc. Look, I don't believe for a moment that race is tied to this. But given the spotlight that's been on the Calgary Police regarding race-related issues, I can see how people would make the tie, especially when much of the crowd at the anti-mask rallies is, well, white. I just don't think they're doing themselves any favors in helping sway public opinion when the disparity in tickets for these events is so obvious. And what it comes down to is two of the groups are trying to follow the public health rules by being in vehicles. The other group is just trying to break the law, period. The fact one involves vehicles and the other doesn't seems to be the deciding factor in all of this. That's it for another show. The next time we talk, summer will be here. We'll probably be into an unfurling of public health measures, and perhaps we'll have more news on the Calgary Stampede. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in June. So long.